0: Amen. Yeah, let's praise Jesus. So we just sang about Jesus flooding the earth, and I know that's our heart cry, and that's our mission as a church. But before Jesus can flood this world through us, he has to flood our hearts. We have to have hearts that are totally surrendered, totally consecrated, totally sold out to him and his ways and his righteousness. And that's what this morning's sermon is about as we continue through the series in Proverbs, the book of wisdom, and today our sermon is, our text is Proverbs chapter 26 verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, open it with me. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 11. Now usually I preach the exact same sermon on Sunday morning as I do Sunday night, but uh, actually tonight is going to be a continuation of this morning's sermon. And we are going to culminate this morning's sermon with part two tonight, and we will partake of communion together. The Lord impressed that upon my heart, Um, because uh, as, as we look at Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11, my prayer for you, my desire for you, is that we will love God more than our sin. And isn't that the key to turning from habitual sin patterns? we have to hate our sin are you to the point yet that you hate your sin or do you still sort of love your sin we have to love God more than our sin in order to turn from our sin in order to be totally surrendered to Christ so that he floods our heart so that he can shine through us here's our text Proverbs chapter 26 verse 11 like a dog that returns to his vomit how many of you guys have seen that how many of you have had a pet, and he starts hacking, and then he starts gagging, and then the dog throws up, and to your dismay, then he, you, you hear this smacking and slurping and licking, and your dog is eating his own vomit. Now when you see that this dog can be a pet that you've had for years, and it can be almost like a family member to you. But when you see it gag and throw up and begin eating its own vomit, you realize, okay, I love this dog, but this is not really one of my family. This is sort of an otherly instinct, an otherly natured creature here. And in the same way, our text, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And it's then that God who is holy, and holy means Otherly. It means set apart. It means that, that we are not just bad and God is good or, or God is better. It's not that we are just sinful and God is very pure. It's that God is holy. That word means otherly. It means set apart. It means completely different than we are. And when God sees us return to those same sin patterns, it highlights the reality that we are different. He is holy. He is set apart. He is otherly. And it grieves the heart of God and it's shocking to the host of heaven when we return to our folly. Now there are many apologetics of the faith. That means the defense of the gospel or rational, logical, scientific, historical evidences that God is real and Christ has risen. There's many proofs, many, many... Uh, historical, archaeological, rational proofs that corroborate our faith in Jesus Christ. Many, many, many of them. But I think one of the most overwhelmingly convincing proofs that God is who He said that He is is that when we live in our folly, when we live in our sin, we lack spiritual momentum. We lack momentum as far as the fruit of the Spirit. And it's as if we are walking against the wind. I grew up in Lubbock, Texas, and it's very windy in Lubbock. And I remember in elementary school, walking home from my school, walking home, and it would be very windy, and I remember I would have my backpack on, both straps, and I would have to plant each foot firmly onto the ground before I took the next step, because the wind was blowing so hard against me, I felt like it would just blow me away if I didn't walk like that. But in the same way, when the wind is at your back and you start running. You can run faster than you ever imagined. And when we live in our folly, or live a life where we have a pattern of returning to that same sin that we say, I was never going to do that again, I was never going to do that again. God, I'm never going to do that again, and we do that. God, I'm never going to do that again, and we do that again. When we live in that habitual sin, and that's what it is, when we live in that habitual sin, It's like walking against the momentum of God. But when we walk in righteousness with hearts that the light of Christ has flooded and shines through us, it's like we have divine momentum in our back. I'm not saying everything is easy. Because in this world, we will have trouble, and when we walk in righteousness, there's a world that opposes us, but we have a spiritual momentum at our back that is stronger than anything that we will ever face. Let's read our text again. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And I just want to say to those of you who have been living in habitual sin that this sermon isn't to beat you up, this sermon is to encourage you. You are here today, praise God, you have stumbled and you've gotten up again. You've fallen down, but you haven't stayed down. And the fact that you're here today with a fresh resolve to seek the face of God, to follow Christ, to share Christ... I believe has stunned an enemy, an, an enemy who has hit you and expected you to stay down, but you haven't stayed down. You've conquered, you've overcome, you haven't, but Christ in you. You were more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. And a just man falls seven times and seven times rises again. So this sermon is to encourage you. You have stood back up, you've repented, you've set your face on following Christ. You've turned your face against Christ. Um, uh, to you've turned around, you've repented so that you're no longer walking against divine momentum. But now, today, divine momentum is at your back again. And so my prayer is that as we walk through specific verses in Proverbs, we've started out this series exposi- um, expositorily, verse by verse, and then we've entered into it topically. So we're going to pull out verses that help us build our life upon a foundation that will help us not to return to our folly. But first, let's understand why is it that we tend to go back to those same sins that we've stumbled into? Can anybody relate with this? Has anybody done this but me? I I certainly have. But why do we? If Jesus is in our heart, if we love Jesus, if we're growing in Christ— If we're grateful that we're saved, why is it that we have a propensity, a tendency to stumble back into sin, the same sin habitually? And by the way, unless we build our lives upon the foundation of wisdom, we will live in habitual sin. Not might, we will live in habitual sin. There's no doubt about it. So uh, we have to change the way that we build our lives and change the way that we live. But why do we have a tendency to return to habitual sin? One, it's because sin is all around us. Sin is all around us, isn't it? I mean, it's on the billboards, it's on your smartphones. People tend to say that Television and movies and technology is all moral. It's neither good nor bad. It's neither moral nor immoral. It's what you do with it that makes it moral or immoral. That's not true. Technology, our culture, advertisements has an enormous bias to unrighteousness and immorality. And there's all sorts of enticements and and temptations and hooks in the water that would drag us from what we would think would be an all-moral platform into unrighteousness. And unrighteousness in this world is even designed like video games some people play, where one game is not enough, but it continues to lure you deeper and deeper and deeper. Sin is all around us. Satan is the prince of this air. And so We have a tendency to return to our sin as a dog returns to his vomit, because sin is all around us. So what do we do? Do we just leave the world and hole up like hermits in a monastery somewhere? No, because sin is also within us. It's within our flesh. The moment we are saved, we are forgiven from the penalty of sin, and the Spirit of Christ enters our heart. That's called salvation. And that leads us into a season of life, a new life called sanctification, where we grow in increasing measures with authority and power over sin. Before we were saved, we did not have the capacity to walk like Christ, who lived 33 years being bombarded by temptation more than any of us ever will, on a second-to-second basis, and yet he never sinned once. Yet, he was tempted in every way like we were. Before Christ entered our heart, we didn't have the capacity to walk like Jesus. You look at the 12 disciples who followed Jesus, the greatest teacher, the greatest lessons. They didn't just listen to him preach once a week. They followed him. They followed in his footsteps. They followed behind his sandals for three and a half years. They sat at the campfire. They tried to emulate his mannerisms. In three and a half years of following the master of masters, the teacher of teachers, they were still so unchristlike. They were still competing over who was the best. They were still jealous. If somebody um, got an answer right, they envied them. They were biased. They were, they, they discriminated. They wanted to call fire down from heaven. They were unloving. They were ambitious, competing for position. After three and a half years of following Christ, which is why Jesus said, it's best if I go away so that I can send the helper, my spirit, in your heart. Now we can be holy as Christ is holy because the Spirit of Christ is in our heart. So the moment you were saved, the penalty of sin was forgiven. But now the Spirit of Christ enters your heart, and now you have the capacity to overcome the power of sin, and this is called sanctification. So when we're saved, we're forgiven from the penalty of sin and that ushers us in to sanctification where we grow in increasing measures over the power of sin in our lives. And we should all grow and be growing in increasing measures over the power of sin, but sometimes there's a hurdle. Sometimes there's a roadblock in all of our sanctification processes so that we fall into a habitual sin and our walk gets stumped up and we no longer are progressing in righteousness sin is all around us but sin is also within us as Paul said the things I want to do I don't the things I don't want to do I do who will deliver me from this body of death if we just left the world because sin is all around us and became hermits somewhere guess what sin would still be within us And we would still be battling these temptations of self-pity or despair or lust or envy or ambition or whatever it might be. And also, we have a tendency to return to our sin as a dog returns to vomit because sin is all around us, because sin is within us. We were saved and forgiven from the penalty of sin that ushers us into sanctification where we grow through the Spirit of Christ in increasing measures over the power of sin. And one day we will be saved and delivered from the very presence of sin, sin, and that's when our spirit leaves our body, this body of death as Paul called it, and we are face to face with Christ. But we have a tendency to continually stumble into sin because sin is not compartmentalized in its nature, it mingles into all of our other good. For example, somebody says, I'm going to be pure But then sin mingles into that window of opportunity, and it causes them to become puritanical and judgmental and intolerable. Um, Somebody says, I am going to be holy, but sin intermingles with that motive, and it causes them to be holier than thou. Somebody says, I am going to walk in humility but sin intermingles with that motive and it causes them to become proud of their humility. Sin says, I'm going to be a prayer warrior. Or we say, I'm going to be a prayer warrior, but sin intermingles and we can become a gossiper. And the list goes on and on and on about how our very best good is vulnerable to sin intermingling with it and contaminating our righteousness, our righteous living. So, this is why we are drawn to sin in this world, and this is why we can all have hang-ups and like a dog returns to its vomit, continue to return to those same habitual sins over and over and over. It might be pride. It might be gossip. It might be slander. It might be words that cut. It might be lust. It might be drunkenness. It might be envy. It might be uh, prejudice. But how do we overcome these habitual sins first? In order to hate sin, and we've got to hate sin, we've got to love God and we have to hate sin, As John Wesley said, give me a hundred men, I don't care if they're laymen or ministers, give me a hundred men who fear nothing but God and hate nothing but evil, and I will change the world with them. How do we get to the point where we hate sin? And we love God so much that we hate our sin. First, don't underestimate the seriousness of sin. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 6. If you just flip back with me a few pages. Proverbs chapter 6. And let's read verses 27 through 29. Don't underestimate the seriousness of your sin. Somebody says, well, that's just a little sin. There is no such thing as just a little sin. Just a small sin warrants the necessity of the cross of Christ, the Son of God, being crucified on our behalf. St. Augustine said, I would not tell one little white lie in order to win the whole world for Jesus Christ. That is the seriousness of sin. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 27 and 29 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unmet. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1 says that the wicked flees. They run, they're afraid, and yet nobody's pursuing them. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. This is what sin does. Sin causes us to lose life. If not physical life, sin, even the least of sins, causes us to lose spiritual life and vitality. Not eternal life, that is secure, but spiritual life and vitality. As we are commanded not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Adrian Rogers said that he lied while telling the truth when he was in college. It's <laughs> a Pastor, I enjoy listening to. He was driving from a country church that he was preaching at back to his campus, and he knew that he had a headlight out on this country road, and the policeman pulled him over, and the policeman went up to him and said, Son, you know your headlight's out? And Adrian Rogers said, My headlight's out? He told the truth, but through simply the inflection of his voice, he lied about it. And the policeman said, well, get it changed. I'll let you go. Just just get it fixed. And he said immediately the Holy Spirit convicted him about that lie. It was a little white lie, but there's no such thing as a little sin because even the least of sins necessitates the cross of Christ. And even the least of sins will diminish our spiritual life. So that as we read in Proverbs 28, we flee, we're on the run, and yet nobody's pursuing us. We're so timid that we're afraid of our own shadow. But when we live in righteousness, we are bold as a lion. Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 81, verse 13 and 14. God says, I'm really tired of you, my people, living as if you're afraid of your own shadow living without boldness, living without divine momentum. And God says, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies, key word there, soon. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes if you repent of the big, what you consider the big sins, if you repent of what you consider the living sins, the, 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 the little sins, and no longer live in um, habitual sin, whether it's little white lies or biting words, condescending words, slandering words, tearing somebody down behind their back or to their face to make yourself look better, or alcoholism or addiction or lust or pornography or immoral relationships, or whatever it is, if you would turn from your sins and allow Christ to flood your heart because you are so surrendered, you would be surprised at how quickly divine momentum would be at your back. As God told His people again in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14, when the heavens shut up the rain... And the, the ground isn't bearing crops oh if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways then I would hear from heaven and I would heal their land again divine momentum would be at their back but we will never experience this divine momentum if we're entertaining even the least of sins in our life in a habitual capacity We have to understand the utter seriousness of sin. Sin diminishes the Spirit's fruitfulness, not only in our heart, soul, and mind, but in our life and church. Sin robs us of peace, and if it doesn't rob us of peace, that means that our heart is becoming so callous that we can live in sin and it doesn't affect us, and we are in a very serious state at that point, and should very quickly expect the discipline of God to trip us up and bring us to a place of brokenness, to tenderize our heart to a spirit again. Sin diminishes fruitfulness, sin robs us of peace, sin ruins fellowship with one another in the body of Christ, sin ruins fellowship with the lost and dying world, sin ruins fellowship with those close to us, sin stills the joy in your life, sin as we talked about last week it hinders your prayers. What, the big sins? No, we read in First Peter that something as simple as a husband, and this isn't simple at all, this is big, but a husband uh, neglecting his wife or causing his wife to be bitter, that as a result God says, I'm not going to hear your prayers. Sin invites God's discipline. Sin violates the grace of God that saved us and says that we don't appreciate it, God. Sin undermines our testimony and evangelism. Even the least of sins. In order to begin hating our sins enough that we surrender it to God and say, take it, God. We have to understand the seriousness of sin. And as we read in Proverbs, can a man scoop fire and hot coals into his lap and not get burned? Of course not. In the same way, we can't play around with sin, even the smallest of sins, and not diminish our life. In August 17, 1662, it was a significant date um, because it was the last day that many pastors in England, it was the last Sunday that many pastors in England preached before their congregations. The government just passed the act of conformity where the ministers in the pulpit had to conform to the doctrine of the church at England. And... Um, Twenty-five hundred pastors preached their farewell sermon, not to be replaced. The churches folded up. 3,000 nonconformists were killed. There's a, there's a book called Farewell Sermons that has the transcripts of 24 of these ministers' last sermons to their congregation. And if you read through the sermons, none of them have, you know, self-pity or woe is me because they're about to be exiled. And- Some killed. It was more things like, um, man, this is a tragedy, but don't worry about us. (laughs) We are glad to suffer with Christ. Um, Our our main concern here is is for you. Um, There was one minister in particular, his name was Calamy, C-A-L-A-M-Y. And in his sermon, he said this, There is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest calamity. And he goes on to say, there is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest misery. He understood the seriousness of sin. To look around at what was happening in his culture, to look at what was happening in his life, in his family's life, in his friend's life, and to say, this isn't what you should be afraid of. This isn't what you should worry about. What you should be afraid of is sin in your life. Because there is greater evil in the least sin than in the greatest calamity, in the greatest misery. And so often, aren't we so focused on the calamity in our life, the tragedy in our life? Aren't we, aren't we so focused on, on the miseries that we feel? But our fear should be about the sin in our life, and we should turn from it. So one, don't, misunder, don't underestimate the seriousness of sin. So the second, as a result... Purpose in your heart, purpose in your heart to God, not to sin again. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 through 27. Be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. And by the way, when Satan tempts us, then we have to respond with the word of God. We have to stand on a truth. From God's Word, whatever it might be, whatever temptation faces us, we have to replace that temptation with the Word of God. Every time Satan opens his mouth and roars out temptations or whispers temptations, we must respond with the Word of God. As the psalmist said in Psalm 119 verse 106, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That means that we have to be in the Word and read the Bible every day. I believe that one of the greatest, again, apologetics for a lost and dying world to know that Jesus Christ is real is when a young man or a young woman, they commit to walk in holiness and walk in righteousness because it pleases God and because they don't want to break the heart of God. And for those of you students, hear this, nothing in the world will speak of the reality of Christ and His love for a lost and dying world when like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are about your age... When you say, you know what, I'm going to follow Christ at school, I'm not going to do what everybody does on Friday night, I'm not going to talk about that person, I'm not going to neglect that person, in fact I'm going to share Christ with that person, I'm going to show love and kindness to that person. When you commit to walking like Christ... Because you're grateful to Christ, and you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that is something that a lost and dying world has no argument against, and they have to recognize the reality of Jesus in your heart. Store up the Word of God in your heart that I might not sin. How can a young man keep his way clean? By taking heed according to your Word, that means you've got to read the Bible every day, and the Holy Spirit will store up what you're going to need and bring it to remembrance later. In Psalm 119, the same Psalm, verse 32, the psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commandments, enlarge my heart. That's that divine momentum at our back when we run in the way of God's commandments, when we walk in righteousness, God enlarges our heart with love, with joy, with a sense of purpose, with an understanding of His love for our lives and His plans for us purpose in your heart not to sin you have to make a commitment not to sin my son be attentive to my words incline your ears to my sayings let them not escape from your sight keep them within your heart for they are life to those who find them and healing to your flesh and it goes on keep your heart with all vigilance for it flows the springs of life but you have, to, you have to make a decision, you have to make a commitment to walk in righteousness and to walk in faithfulness. Proverbs 4 continues, put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your eye and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be established. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Purpose in your heart not to sin. One, recognize the severity of sin. There is no small sin. And if you find yourself in a habitual sin, recognize the severity and the high costs in your life. There is no small sin. They actually interviewed um, serial killers. And you want to know what a common denominator in all of their life was? Pornography. There is no secret sin that stays secret. There is no compartmentalized sin that stays in that compartment. I've interviewed many... Um, people who have sexual um, uh, predatorial uh, crimes in their background. And I've visited with them and counseled them and prayed with them. You want to know what a common denominator is in every one of their stories? Pornography. There's no secret sin that stays secret. There's no compartmentalized sin that stays compartmentalized counsel with many couples and the intimacy is just no longer in their marriage you want to know what a common denominator is pornography there is no small sin no compartmentalized sin Diminishes your life. It diminishes your ability to love. It diminishes your ability to view through the lenses of Christ, and that's with complete purity and righteousness. It diminishes your capacity. You actually lose the capacity to experience intimacy in the relationships that God wants you to have intimacy within. Sin has a cost. And if it doesn't cost you your very life, it will cost you the most tender and intimate blessings that God has designed for you. You have to recognize the high cost of sin to get to the place in your life where you start hating your sin. And if you don't hate your sin yet, then you better pray, oh God, help me to see the severity of this sin. help me to hate it and we have to have that in order to purpose in our heart with conviction, with commitment with seriousness not to go back so three we have to establish relationships that help us in this commitment we read in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, that pride goes before the fall. What is pride in this context? Pride is saying, I can keep this sin a secret. Nobody's going to know about it because I can handle it. You know what? If you've sinned and you've said, God, forgive me, and you've sinned again, and you said, God, forgive me, and you've sinned again, and you said, God, forgive me, I assure you, you're addicted to that sin. And you can't handle it. And it's got a grip on you. Satan has a stronghold in your life. Satan has legal authority in your life because you've given it to him. It's like if you own 50 acres of land and there's one acre in the very center of the land... And you own all 50 and and I wanted that one acre in the very center because it has a nice scenic overview and so you sold it to me. And so I ingress and egress from that land at my will and I start desecrating the land and playing loud music and throwing large parties and you decide that you want me out and you say get out and I say no, I bought this land, I own it, this is mine legally. Here's the contract and there'd be nothing that you could do about it. In this same way, through the death of burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus rendered Satan, sin and death, a toothless bulldog. He's all bark, he's no bite, he has no authority in your life that you haven't given him. And if you've given land over to Satan, he has established a foundation, he's dug down roots, he's holding on, and he's not leaving. And so you have to establish relationships in your life that will help you walk in freedom because know this Jesus said it is for freedom that I've set you free I haven't just set you free from the penalty of sin I have set you free to walk over the power of sin he wants us to walk in freedom His design for our life isn't uh, to, to remain in the quagmire and quicksand of habitual sin. It is for freedom that He has set us free, and the Bible tells us that pride goes before the fall, therefore we have to let relationships into our lives that can help us walk out. We read in James that if we confess our sins and Christians, and the leaders of the church, and, and certain people with relationships in our life who care about our soul, lay hands on us and pray for us, we will be healed and forgiven of those sins, and we are not forgiven in order to go to heaven. That was secured the moment we trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, but we are forgiven in the sense of we now have the capacity to walk in freedom and boldness and authority, When we invite invite certain relationships into our life to help us out of this habitual sin, it's like turning the light switch on, and the moment you turn the light switch on, cockroaches scatter. The moment we confess our sin, Satan loses his grip on our life. And you say, but don't I only have to confess to the Lord to be forgiven and to go to heaven? Yes, of course. But if we find ourselves in a habitual sin, then Satan has a grip. He has a stronghold. And when we confess our sins to brothers and sisters in Christ, the light switch comes on. Satan loses his stronghold, and we are able to walk in freedom. It's called accountability. And by the way, if you're taking notes, or even if you're not taking notes, please write this down. Covenant Eyes, the word covenant and then eyes, it's, a, it's an app. If you have a smartphone, I, I have this on my phone, Covenant Eyes, uh, download this app this afternoon, and this basically monitors... Uh, anything that you look at, and and it will enable you to have friends that will send a report to sites that you've gone to, because when, when you turn the light switch on and there's no longer secrecy, Satan loses his grip, and it enables you to walk in freedom. So just check it out. It's a good app. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 12 say that when two people decide to walk together, someone comes against them and and... They're not going to be overcome, but really when three people come down, come together to walk together, a 3 cord strand is not easily broken. So if you find yourself continually falling back into a habitual sin, I would encourage you, get a couple of brothers together, or if you're a lady, get a couple of sisters together who are confidential, who you can be assured of their confidentiality. And just confess your sin. Say, I'm struggling. And I promise you'll be met with humility. You'll be met with compassion. And let them pray over you. Let them follow up with you. And this habitual sin will lose its grip on your life. And you'll sense this cleanness in your heart that enables you to walk in freedom. Four. Resist the first risings of the temptation Proverbs chapter 5 verse 8 and it reads this is wisdom watching and she sees a young man walking through the streets at night and he's just sort of meandering accidentally but really intentionally through the door of a seductive woman who's married and wisdom cries out Keep your way far from her and do not go near to the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. The, the principle here is stay away from even the opportunity to sin. Stay away from the door of the adulteress. Don't don't just focus on on stumbling up with the adulteress. Focus on staying away from the door of the adulteress, which goes back to our principle, resist the first risings of temptations. Don't begin entertaining it, because we read in the book of James that we sin when desires are inflamed and it leads us away. In other words, cut sin off at the point of conception. Don't wait until the point of delivery. Don't wait until the sin within you develops so much momentum that you begin being led astray by your desires that have been fanned into flame. Resist at the first risings of temptation. When you first have that thought, cast it down. And this is is why establishing accountable relationships is so important. This is why other people knowing how you're struggling is so critical, because you know that that nothing is going to be done in secret. And this is what is so effective about the app Covenant Eyes. You know that nothing is going to be done in secret, and it allows you to cast down those thoughts at the risings of the first inclinations and temptations. But don't just resist the thoughts, replace the thoughts. If you just resist the thoughts, then what are you doing? you're thinking about the thoughts? And where the mind goes, there the man will eventually go. Our church uh, was having a fundraiser for our youth for kids to go to camp, and we were having a pancake luncheon after church. Doesn't that sound good, pancakes for lunch? So... I was in the office, and I came up with a graphic for the pancakes. It was an awesome picture of pancakes with, you know, the syrup cascading over the side. And um, and so I was sending out emails about pancakes, text messages about pancakes, posting pictures about pancakes. So the the pancake lunch was Sunday after church, so guess where I was Saturday night about 11 p.m.? I was at Waffle House eating pancakes. (laughs) Why is that? Because where the mind goes... There the man will eventually go. Which is why as soon as you think about it, cut those thoughts off. It doesn't do good to simply resist the thoughts, resist them, resist them, resist them, because what do you doing? you're thinking about them? And then our desires follow our thoughts and our actions follow our desires. So cast the thoughts down, but not only that, replace the thoughts with God's will replace the thoughts with God's promises what God wants for you replace the thoughts well you said but I have nothing to replace the thoughts with well then you're in trouble because again how can a young man keep his weight clean by taking heed according to your word you have to have the word stored up in your heart in order to replace the thoughts replace the thoughts of what God wants to do in your life Replace the thoughts of a promise that you're hanging on to. Replace the thoughts with prayers for the desires that God has put into your heart. Replace these thoughts. Chuck Swindoll, a great preacher, said that when he was in the Marines, I believe he was stationed in either Vietnam or Korea, but from uh, every night for some reason there was this path that he had to walk down and there were prostitutes on each side of the aisle, of of this street. And he said that he would just... Look down or look straight ahead and pick up his pace and walk straight through there because he knew that God's calling was on his life. He knew that God had anointed him and he would just pray, Oh God, give me strength to overcome this. What's he doing? He's replacing the temptation with the dreams of what God wants to do in his life. So resist the temptations at the first risings because you're important in the kingdom of heaven God has a purpose for your life he has a plan for you there are blessings and desires and promises that he's put in your heart that he wants to fulfill in your life so resist those thoughts resist the temptations at the first rising and replace them with every good thing that God wants to do in your life replace the temptations with worship Whatsoever things are noble and lovely, of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, think on these things. And then finally, remember who you are. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7. And we read, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, So was he. Remember who you are. You know, this was Jesus' key in overcoming temptation in the wilderness. At the baptism, God the Father spoke over God the Son This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was the Son's identity. It's who he was, it's who he is. God the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And by the way, since we are in Christ and Christ is in us, Christ's identity is our identity. We are God's beloved children. And through Christ, whom he is well pleased. This is our identity. God loves us. God is pleased with us in Christ Jesus. This is who we are. You were loved by God. You are the righteousness of God. When God sees you, he doesn't shake his head in disgust. When God sees you, he sees the righteousness of his own son. This is who you are. You're not as righteous as Billy Graham. You're as righteous as Christ. You're not as righteous as Mother Teresa. You're as righteous as Christ. When God looks at you, he's pleased with you. You're the very righteousness of Christ. Salvation isn't just being forgiven of our sins and going to heaven. Salvation is being clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ and having the power and authority to walk in that righteousness in this life. God loves you. He is pleased with you. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done today. God loves you. He is so pleased with you. You are the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he doesn't see a sin, not one. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is why we can boldly enter the throne of God and make our requests known. When Jesus died on the cross, so did your sin, all of it. When he looks at you, he doesn't see one single sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And why does he still discipline us? When we sin, because he loves us and he wants us to walk in divine momentum and he wants the best for us. Our identity is Christ's identity. We are his beloved children, and he loves us. So we tend to think that Satan's temptations against Jesus were simply threefold. You know, for the for the flesh, turn the uh, stone into bread and, um, for, the, for the, the, the pride of life um, throw yourself off the cliff and I'll catch you or, and, and, and let, God, let God's angels catch you, quoting Psalm 91 or idolatry, bow down and worship me and I'll give you this whole world and, and that's that now we know that Jesus responded to each temptation with the word of God, it is written it is written, it is written and away from me Satan but I believe that there was actually one major temptation not simply three temptations I believe there was one major temptation expressed in these three ways when Satan attacked Jesus because Satan began each of his temptations with this statement if you are the Son of God. Turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, jump off the mountain for He will command His angels concerning you to guard you so you don't dash your foot against the stone. If you are the Son of God. The temptations occurred immediately after the baptism. Jesus went straight from the baptism right up the mountain, Mount Qumran, on top of the mountain and through the wilderness where He was tempted. And what was Satan's agenda? He was trying to tempt Jesus to doubt who he was in God if you are the Son of God. And the identity that the Father had just spoke over the Son was, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Christ's identity is our identity. And at the heart of every one of our temptations is a temptation to doubt that God loves us. It's a temptation to doubt that God is pleased with us. It is a temptation to doubt that God has an incredible plan for us and there's an incredibly high calling and purpose on our life. And so we doubt that and we give in to to this remember who you are as a man thinks in his heart as a woman or a boy or girl think in their heart so they are you are loved by God you are the very righteousness of Jesus Christ and you are called and God has a purpose and plan for your life don't miss it all that he has in store for you So would you stand with me please There's a, there's a story about a man who was, um, his habitual sin was eating donuts. <laughs> and he was, he was driving to work, and he saw that donut store with those blueberry donuts, and he just wanted to run of, just right out of the oven, kind of melt in your mouth, the blueberry donuts and a cup of coffee. But he was trying to lose weight, and this was his weakness, and he said to himself, I'm only going to stop if there's a parking spot right in front of the door. And then after the, after the seventh time around the donut store there was a parking spot right there. And we all have our struggles don't we? And we've all maybe justified them and rationalized them in our own way and we've all tried to keep them a secret. But Christ... He saved you to walk in freedom. And you have the capacity, you have the power to walk in freedom. I don't care what your struggle is. You have the power to walk in freedom. Today, you do. But you have to get to the place where you realize the severity of sin, how it's costing you, the high price of sin in your life, how it's costing the people close to you. It has such a high price in your life. You have to get to the point where you you realize how serious sin is, even what you think is a small sin, a secret sin, a compartmentalized sin, which there is no such thing because it affects every other area of your life. You have to get to the point where you realize how serious, even what you think is the least of all sins, that you begin to hate that sin. And you tell Jesus, change my heart, God. And you commit to walk in righteousness by reading the Word every day. Holding, holding it close in your heart. And then inviting some brothers into your life. It's awesome, man. I've done this. Yeah, I'm a pastor, but I'm human. I don't think of myself too highly. I don't trust myself. I invite people into my life, and I say, hey, I'm struggling. Would you pray for me? And they do. And I'm encouraged. Because I'm not alone, and the light is shown into my life and into my heart, and sin loses its grip, and I can continue to walk in freedom. Christ has set us free to walk in freedom. I don't care what your sin is. I don't care what your habitual pattern is. You can have freedom over it today. And then... Know who you are in Christ. Your calling is too important to walking bondage any longer. We're in a spiritual war and Satan is warring against your soul. And if he can't uh, make a Christian a non-Christian, which he can't. If he can't make you join his team, which he can't, no problem. He'll just try to take you out of this life through sin or he will make you a prisoner of war so that your anointing is diminished and you're just in- inoculated. You're a prisoner of war, and you're not walking in freedom because of some habitual pattern in your life. But today that can stop. So in our response time, I, I know of no better challenge for you than to simply uh, pray during this response, Oh, God, I turn from my sin, and I turn into your loving embrace. I surrender my whole heart to you, and I leave behind no compartmentalized aspect of my life. None. It's all surrendered to you, Jesus. Because there is, again, there is no compartmentalized sin. Even if you don't realize it, you probably do in your heart of heart. It is costing you severely in all the other areas. There is no such thing as a compartmentalized, hidden secret sin. It is costing you severely. So, let's respond. The altars are open, and let's just respond with worship, giving our whole heart to Christ.